From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Before we get into today's podcast, a word from our sponsor, Gosling's Rum. Gosling's Rum is a secret blend of three different distillates, each aged separately in once-used charred oak bourbon barrels. Gosling's Black Steel Rum is the key ingredient in Bermuda's national drink, the Dark and Stormy, which happens to be one of my favorites. Originally offered in champagne bottles sealed with black wax, from whence comes its name, Bet you didn't know that. It's not the seal. It's the wax cap at the top from the old bottle. Anyways, this deep, dark rum still possesses the same smooth, rich, intricate flavor as the original recipe from the 1850s. Still slowly aged in small batches, Black Seal Rum was awarded the highest honor, the Platinum Medal from the Beverage Tastings Institute. And for a limited time, you can use code VINEPAIR at checkout on reservebar.com for $15 off your Gosling Drum order. So you should probably go some, buy some rum. I'm going to go buy some rum. You should go buy some rum. Guys, before we uh, you know, get into today's topic, I want to talk about some new stuff. But prior to that, I know early on in the uh, in you know our COVID times, we, we had a conversation about coffee and how we were getting more into it, drinking a lot more of it. And I've had a new development in my life. Um, it was not planned, but that development is that a friend of ours for our wedding anniversary decided to... We have a friend who like became a very close friend of Naomi and mine, like basically right after we got married. And she has decided to always never let us live it down that she wasn't invited to our wedding. <laughs> and we're like, we, we like we were friendly with you, but like, you didn't be. And now she's like a like probably our closest friend. Like, um, my she's my wife's closest friend in the same way that Josh is my closest friend. But now we've all become friends. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so. You know, she she never lets us live it down. And so all of a sudden last week, it was our wedding anniversary. And she said, please go downstairs and there's a package for you. And she had bought us an espresso machine. Oh, wow. wow. To prove that she should have been invited to our wedding. Oh, now, she's a, now, now, for full disclosure, she is uh, the number two GC at Urban Group. So Urban Outfitters. Okay. So she does very well for herself. <laughs> so let's be clear. Does she want to pretend like she should have been invited to my wedding too? Because I'll take an espresso machine. <laughs> but she's, but you know, and you guys know I'm, a, I'm an espresso fan, but to have an espresso machine. So she threw us for a loop because we're like, what do we do? Now we have to, you know, we have to put the, we're not, we can't have two machines out. That's insane. And also we probably were creating a lot of waste with an espresso. So now I've gotten really into making actual espresso and it's in, it's like jet fuel. <laughs> It's different. Oh it's gosh. definitely different than Nespresso by far. Like I feel the caffeine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can hear my voice, I just made one. But I also didn't realize how much fun it is. Like you can play with dialing it down or dialing it up or, you know, the extraction levels. It's really cool. Although, again, it's like one of those gifts where I never would have bought this for myself. But because it was bought for me now, I'm really into it <laughs> and and enjoying it a lot. And so awesome. I, I just want to apologize to everyone because I'm extremely caffeinated. <laughs> Yeah, it's, wow. you're not you're not actually listening to this at 1.5 speed. That's just Adam. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about some some news and predictions. I think you know as 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 things are starting to move uh, along in our in our COVID world, I think we're in, we're seeing a lot of activity in the world of alcohol. We've talked a lot about obviously on premise and off premise and things like that. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit as well about some things we're seeing on the business side. And so one of the things I wanted to bring up is the purchase last week uh, of Empathy Wines uh, by Constellation Brands. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with Empathy, Empathy Wines uh, were a is a direct-to-consumer winery that was started by Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, most people may know Gary uh, as the founder of 
wine library TV, uh, you know, a wine library it was a, a business that he basically took over from his parents and basically grew it in this multi-million dollar wine shop in uh, New Jersey. Then he, you know, took that and flipped into uh, an advertising agency that's been very successful called VaynerMedia. Uh, he's also a um, very well-regarded investor in, in you know, tech, et cetera. Full disclosure, he is an investor in VinePair. Um, but I thought what was interesting is this purchase of Empathy Wines because the amount of sales they've done in only a year of launch isn't that huge. Uh, they've only done about three and a half million dollars, three point seven, I think, is the exact figure that that was used in the article I read. Uh, in terms of how many sales directly to consumers they've made in, uh, since launching in two thousand nineteen, but the emphasis that Constellation put on this purchase was the you know the strong desire in COVID to move as fast as possible into the direct to consumer space. Um, and then seeing this as one of the quickest ways to do that. And so I have a few predictions. One, I think you're going to see, I think in any time that you have, uh, you know, issues of economic downturn, et cetera, you see a lot of M&A activity. I think we're going to see a lot more purchases in the next six to nine months. Just, you know, whether whether you're listening to this and, and I've already called you out or not, I think you are. I think we're going to see a lot of brands that we know get bought by bigger players because this is like, this is one of the key times in, in economics where it is really advantageous for people who have capital to purchase people who may or may not have as much capital. So I think you're going to see a very active M&A market in the next, you know, six to nine months. But then also I think a lot of that M&A is going to be focused on brands that a lot of these larger alcohol companies see as being having the potential to be direct to consumer. I think on the empathy wines front, I have not tried the wines. Have either of you? No. no. Were either of you familiar about them before I brought them up? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, Vaynerchuk, like you kind of Right, know. exactly. Yeah. So I think on the empathy wines front, I think uh, Constellation is probably, if you if someone who listens, if anyone who works for Constellation is listening to this podcast, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and tell me if my hypothesis is right. In all fairness, I don't, I, I don't, ever talk to Gary. So I don't know for a fact, but I have to assume that a lot of the purchase was probably also based on just him, right? So he probably is signing on in the same way Clooney signed on to the purchase of Casamigos as probably the brand personality for the next X amount of years while he gets his earn out. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot of people focus even more on investment and uh, you know purchase in the direct-to-consumer space. Well, and I also wonder, you know, I think a thing specifically with empathy, from what I understand, is it's not just all direct to consumer, but they're they're in, I think entirely e commerce, right? But there's no, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's not like it's not like DTC, like a lot of you know wineries are DTC focused, but they also have a tasting room, and you know they have a whole kind of physical presence. I mean, obviously there's a winery or or at least wine production in some capacity, but it's really you know I think what you're seeing is not just that DTC is super. Um, you know, uh, is alluring to bigger brands or to brands in general, but the ability to sell without having to have any physical presence, obviously now is uh, more valuable than ever. Right. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's to so clarify, Zach, which is a good point. It's a purely direct-to-consumer brand, which I think is super interesting as well, because it's showing that they've built this brand off of no one ever tasting the wine prior to the first purchase, which is kind of insane. I mean, now maybe if you went over to one of your friend's houses who happened to have bought these wines and you tasted them and um, you know you got into them and so then maybe you maybe you went and bought them as well. But that's a very different business model, right? I mean, I think the the most active direct to consumer uh, you know, market that we see in the US right now is people who winery tasting clubs, like you talked about, right? So well, people but it's who 
it's also kind of like the, you know, you've seen some of these like wine clubs that have popped up uh, that you, I mean, like I see on my Instagram feed all the time that are, that are sort of a similar general idea where you sign up and you're getting wine that you've never tried before. And in that, in those cases, a lot of times it's no kind of basically repackaged bulk wine, but it's the same idea, right? Like you're, you're buying in yeah. for, for the, I mean, I guess, and again, I haven't tried the wine, so this is not meant as a knock at all on the, on the wines. It's just, you're buying branding, you're buying some reputation and you're buying, you know, value that's, that's perceived there because it's, you know, reasonably affordable wine. But yeah, it, it is a different model for sure than the tasting room signing up for the wine club. And then they send you a case of wine every six months or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see DTC just blow up. I mean, I over over the past five years, it's already been growing so much. So I, I was talking to a, a consultant in the industry who was telling me, you know, five years ago it was in the single digits, like DTC, the overall makeup of direct-to-consumer sales as part of overall sales. It was like 5%, then 8%, then like 12%, then 15%. And now last year it was 25% of overall sales in the industry. Uh, and I'd have to confirm those numbers. I just, this was from a conversation, but, you know, I think that now, especially, I mean, look, it was just announced that, uh, that the tasting rooms in Napa are going to have to indoor, uh, at least are going to have to close down again. So, uh, you yeah. know, we are in this very unpredictable time where you need to be able to, uh, sell direct to consumers. And, and I completely agree with you on the front also that we are going to see small wineries banding together to do this sort of thing. I literally got pitched on that this morning. Oh, really? A bunch of wineries. Yeah. A bunch of wineries are banding together to launch this app and it'll be very similar to the empathy wine model where you're getting wines that you haven't tried but they're like saying these are the best wines um from these wineries and you know it's it's going to be like a um an amazing offering type thing like they're really all about it right now so i think wineries have had to say like how are we going to regroup and recoup some of the sales that we're missing from on-premise this seems to be the best way yeah well it's not even just missing sales on premise, it's missing sales in the tasting room. I mean, that's the huge, you know, for a lot of these brands too, it's, you know, the, the model, you know, the, the distribution side of it is, you know, maybe a little bit of a profit margin, but their big, but their big profit is selling wine to consumers directly. And if your model is based on someone walking in the door, tasting the wine and buying a, you know, subscribing to your wine club or buying a six or 12 bottles of wine, and that's not an option for you, or it's vastly curtailed, yeah, you got to find another way to get your wine into people's hands, and and whether it's an app or or something else. I, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's but it's it's definitely again you're right going to drive that that acquisition side because a lot of people might decide, hey, I got to cash out now while I can. Yeah, I do. I think it's gonna be interesting to watch both the, what happens in more D to C in the next year, and also uh, as we sort of see what happens in the merger acquisition market, and whether we see any uh, any new you know, announcements in the coming months of brands that are being purchased. So, you know, again, if you want to give us a hot tip, let us know, but I (laughs) I definitely, I definitely don't think Constellation's purchase of empathy will be the last thing we hear uh, in the coming months. Uh, But let's jump into this week's story because it was not supposed to be about mergers and acquisitions. It was supposed to be another, uh, you know, huge story in the world of uh, alcohol uh, in the past few weeks. And that is the controversy surrounding the court of master sommeliers and Erica, we just published a really big piece on this entire controversy. So I thought you'd as the editor of that piece, be the perfect person to sort of summarize what's going on for us and then kick off the conversation. 
Yeah, so over the past couple of weeks, uh, there's really been a, a reckoning on race in the court of Master Sommelier's Americas. So, you know, in late May, protests erupt over George Floyd's killing by the Minneapolis police. And at that point, you know, people in the in the wine industry, as well as across all industries, start talking about like, look, you know, either there's you're you're uh, on the wrong side of the conversation or the right side of the conversation. The right side of the conversation being anti-racism and how can organizations do more and recognize the issue, address the issue. How can you take proactive steps to making your organizations and companies um, uh, anti-racist? So, you know, that's a huge range of possibilities from staffings and trainings and, um, you know, on and on. So so what happened uh, in this particular case is that time goes by and, uh, the, the Court of Master Sommeliers is silent on the issue. Finally, on June 7th, uh, the board chairman, Devin Broly, who is the, the global beverage buyer for Whole Foods, he emails the Master Sommeliers. There's about 172 of them, I think. And he these are the members of that organization at, at its highest level. And uh, there's a statement that is sent out and that is sort of quietly posted on the website of the organization. And um, it contains very few specifics as to the diversity actions that the leaders of the organization will take. Um, And then it's silence again. Um, So there's nothing happening on social media until June 17th, when it's finally announced to members and to the public that the quartermaster sommeliers is forming a diversity committee. But by that time, the damage had been done. So, you know, in the ensuing period between the end of May and uh, June 17th, you know, there people are posting, they're saying, why isn't the Court of Master Sommeliers stepping up? Um, uh, uh, Tahira Habibi, she is a, she's the founder of the Hugh Society, and she had posted a video Uh, talking about her experience having um, gone through um, the court, where as a Black woman, she's told during her introductory exam, uh, you know, to to address the person, her, her, um, uh, you know, judge in this as master. And then she talked about how uh, the court had added insult to injury by including the Hugh Society in its initial anti-racism statement but that was an unsolicited message. So that looked like an unsolicited mention. So that looked like the Hugh Society was supporting the court, but that was actually not the case. Um, they had not been in any sort of contact with the Hugh Society. And so at that point, Broly revises the statements, revi- uh, removes the Hugh Society from it, and then does outline the board's initial steps towards diversity and inclusion. So, you know, during this whole period, Period, like that's happening. Then um, so- several master sommeliers resign. So you know it's it's kind of a you know a volley of these stalling and missteps that um, propel people like Richard Betts, who uh, he's the co-owner of Unapproached Relaxation Wines and um, owns a, another wine company called Casa Comos Beverage Group. He is a 17-year veteran of the court. He is very prominent 
resigns. Then Brian McClintock, he's the owner of Viticole Wine Club. He's one of the stars of the song films. He resigns. Then Nate Reddy, who is uh, one of the owners of Oregon's Hayu Wine uh, Farm. He had been a master sommelier also for decades. He resigns. Then at the same time, other people like Dustin Wilson from the Somme films, uh, who's also a master sommelier, he's taking the court to task on social media, you know, really talking about how they are botching uh, their response to anti-racism and their response to a lot of the criticism that they are getting. So that is the framework in which we find ourselves now. Uh, There has been um, this scandal on top of the 2018 scandal. So the 2018 scandal was uh, where there was a a cheating situation that happened in one of the exams where um, one of the judges had slipped the... um, identification of some of the wines that would be included in the tasting to a couple of people. But instead of allowing, um, you know, really investigating and allowing the uh, situation to be contained, the court stripped the passes from everyone who took it at that time. And that had been a really criticized um, situation because, I mean, it's literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours, tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, a a huge, huge investment of time. And to just across the board um, invalidate those tests was really widely criticized. So coming out of that, um, those two things together have made a lot of people uh, who are both in the court and out of the court very critical of of, of the organization. And, um, and so now the organization has said that it is going to come out and, uh, you know, it will have this diversity committee, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of people on online forums um, within the sommelier community and without are now saying, you know, is the, is the court, how relevant is the court moving forward? Do we even need the court? There are other certifications like the master of wine certification that could take its place. So where, do we go from here? And that's the conversation that's happening uh, throughout the industry right now. I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty insane. <laughs> um, I, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts, but obviously, um, you know, I don't uh, have never worked on the floor. So I, I would like to defer to our, our sommelier amongst <laughs> us uh, uh, for, for years first sec. Yeah. Well, I think the, I'm going to start from, from the beginning, I guess, as I see it. And, and Erica mentioned this, I think it's it's not has not been necessarily fully internalized by by the powers that be within the court and then necessarily the broader wine community. Just how devastating the response to the 2018 cheating scandal was in terms of shaking a lot of people's faith in in this institution. And I mean, it's also important to remember that the Court of Master Sommeliers was a is a relatively recent, especially in the Americas, is a relatively recent. Uh, creation, you know, it dates back into the I think the 1970s, right. and really, for the sake of most of us, doesn't really become prominent until the Psalm films come out. So we're talking about less than a decade of time in which it's really something that we would ever be talking about on a podcast like this. You know, prior to that, it was a, a it wasn't unimportant. It, it mattered. There were people who were very passionate about it, but it was a relatively small scale endeavor, mostly undertaken by you know sommeliers at 
high-end restaurants and a few big distribution companies and things like that um, in a few cities. It was not the sort of big deal that it, it has become. And as a result, you know, it was this huge influx of of uh, attention, of money, and of and then of expectation, I think, that went along with it. And, you know, to some extent, I mean, this is, again, just me personally, my own experience with the court. I'm not going to, I don't want to try and generalize too much. I think it became clear that the more I went along that there was a lot of, for lack of a better word, there was a lot of um, networking and who you knew that that sort of substituted for actual rigorous assessment of knowledge. And it's not to say that that so, so I want to jump in because I think you're making a great point, and I want to just further your point before you keep going. Because instead of me coming back to what you, sure, <laughs> what's, please. So, so I think what you're saying is has was also echoed uh, last week by Elizabeth Schneider, who uh, is the creator of the podcast Wine for Normal People. Um, she wrote a, a pretty intense blog post about the court as well, in which she's basically saying exactly what you said. I'm just going to paraphrase what she said. Basically, you know, as a as a child of professors, you know, her husband's a professor himself, the, the court has been taken to mean what people assume that it means is it's a, it's a certification test. But in, in actuality, when you look at other high-level careers, the pass rates for these high-level careers is much higher percentages than it is for the court, right? Internal medicine has a 91% pass rate. Cardiovascular disease, according to her and her research, has a 92% pass rate in medical school, right? So uh, critical care medicine, 92% pass rate. Infectious disease, 98% pass rate. A certified public accountant on the first time they take the test has a 50% pass rate. People who take the California bar for the first time, lawyers, have at least a 36% pass rate on the first time they take the test. The court of master psalms pass rate is 8%, which basically makes her believe what you're saying, which is the only conclusion you can set, you can come to is this isn't a certification organization. It's something else. Now, what that something else is, I think a lot of people will debate, right? I think a lot of people will call it an old boys club, which it could be. People will call it a very exclusive white old boys club, which I think the piece somewhat lays out. But like that, that to me is, is the first thing Like your point that's very clear is, you know, if it, it, a lot of people who, who seem to walk away from the court have the same criticism you do, which is that it doesn't seem to be just about the knowledge. Because if it was, I don't think they would be having this many issues, now, please go on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think you're right. I think there's there's a couple things to say here. Okay, so one of them is that the especially as the popularity and reputation of the court took off and of master sommeliers took off again, mostly following the the first Psalm film, you saw that that for them for for a lot of the people in the court, they said, okay, great, this is this is great for us, right? Like, you know, now I can you know, if I'm a master sommelier, I can probably demand a raise, I can go find a more a higher paying job, I can, you know, ask for more speaking and, and, you know, appearance fees and all these kinds of things, I can take on consulting jobs for wineries. And, and it and protecting the reputation of the existing master sommeliers and of the master sommelier uh, credential became the single most important thing. And one way they had to do that was to maintain this extremely low pass rate, because whereas I think most people in society would say that having more highly qualified internal medicine doctors is good, not bad. Having too many master sommeliers in the eyes of the existing master sommeliers is a bad thing, not a good thing. Whether or not it's, you know, the people who are taking the test are actually qualified. I mean, this is, again, only supported by my own anecdotal experience. It's not 
meant to be a, a rigorously researched thing because it's impossible to. But but my suspicion is that if you pass the master sommelier exam 15 or 20 years ago, there's a pretty good chance that your level of knowledge was lower at that point than what's required to even pass the advanced exam now, which is the one that comes before that. It just wasn't as rigorous. Everything I've read and heard from people who have been through it is that, you know, that what was expected of you was less. The blind tasting was, was less complicated. There were fewer wines. There, the theory exam was less difficult. The world of wine was just smaller or at least perceived to be smaller. And so, you know, you never have to re-up your certification. You know, if you've, if you've achieved the master level, no one ever comes by and retests you to ensure that you still know what the hell you're talking about or that you're staying on top of the world of wine. You just have the MS that you can put on after your name. You have the pin. And that's, I mean, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. That's, that's what the organization exists to do. But I think it's true that there were a lot of people, and I'll include myself in this, who at, a, at one point in time felt like, oh, this is a really like high-minded sort of noble pursuit of some combination of wine knowledge and wine service. And, you know, it has some of that. But I think the more I went into it, the more I saw friends and colleagues of mine attempt to pass the, the highest level exams. And then, like I said, the the fallout of this 2018 scandal really just illuminated that, you know, in the end, again, I'm not totally sure how I would quantify what the Court of Master Sommeliers is, but it is, I think, decidedly not really dedicated to um, ensuring that the most highly qualified and skilled wine professionals achieve the Master Sommelier exam. It's 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 devoted to ensuring that some small number of them do in a controlled way that limits the numbers and that still, frankly, is shrouded in a lot of mystery and secrecy. And it's that secrecy and mystery that has come back again to bite it because, yeah, it's hard not to look at the current, you know, uh, gender and racial makeup of the master sommelier group and say, well, you know, are you are you all really the people who are best equipped to address inequality? Like you, quite honestly, probably mostly don't see it, you know. Right. And and it's not to demean or denigrate any individual person in that group, but it's it's just an honest fact that like if you are a group of mostly middle aged and older white men, you probably look at your test and your testing and don't see it to be particularly biased because it wasn't biased against you. So, so how are you going to see that bias? And when people come and tell you, Hey, this is biased in a whole host of ways, you know, it, it's not uncommon. We've seen this with lots of other organizations for them to stick their head in the sand or to deny it, or to sort of, you know, create a diversity task force that doesn't really do much. And and we'll see what happens with this one. But I mean, again, the, the, the structure of the court and its whole system is designed to tightly control the flow through. And frankly, because it's so the testing itself is so secret and and the criteria and the the sort of standards are never made public it really does it's hard to avoid the the you know the conclusion as someone who's participated in it that a lot or at least a significant part of who passes and who doesn't is about who you know who you've been yep. mentored by at least in the past i know they're, they're they're claiming to make efforts to change that but but until it happens until it's been evidenced i don't see any reason to believe it well let's be clear here i mean the Court of Master Sommeliers has built its reputation based on taking on the model of becoming of, of creating itself as a turning itself into a luxury brand, right? And how do you create luxury brands? You basically have scarcity and limited access, right? You look at Celine bags as the perfect example, right? You can't just walk into Hermes and buy a Celine bag, right? You have to know the right person. You have to be of a certain net worth. You have to spend enough at Hermes. And then someone may, if you are lucky, let you buy the Celine bag, right? You look at 
Ivy League education is another great example, right? Early on in early days prior to us legislating for, you know, requirements to have fairness in admittance practices, it was very hard to get into Ivy League schools unless you had an elite background. And they've used the, those reputations that have still been, you know, that they built hundreds of years ago to still be the schools that more students you know, who are excelling in academics will say they want to go to than any others, right? And so I, I do wonder if in, in only about 10 years, based on, you know, the SOM films, they've been able to, the court's been able to capitalize on this one fact, right? Which is that, how, how many is it now? Is that 200, Erica? 200 and what have passed? Yeah. Like 172. Yeah, right. yeah like 172. That, that, is, that is all the organization has, right? And, and the second that that test becomes more inclusive and more people are able to pass it, the less and less of a luxury brand the court becomes and the less and less of, of, a, of a brand in terms of that pin this court is, right? But when you have a luxury brand, you're probably going to be pretty racist. Like, let's just be clear. Like, there's yeah. a lot of, of shit that you're going to run into if you're trying to be exclusionary in order to protect your brand and this number that is very important, yeah. right? And I, I don't know how the court – ever really does move forward for this uh, from this unless they make the test something that more people can pass they have to fix that eight percent pass rate or else it's always going to be like the white country club in town that that you don't know why you didn't get in when you applied but you didn't get in and you're pretty sure it has to do with your skin color or your religion exactly it, it is just it's that's exactly what it's like so you know uh Devin Broly, the the chair, he has said, you know, that the organization is colorblind. His quote from this article is, we've believed that the organization has been entirely inclusive, that we've held to a strict non-discrimination policy, and that the meritocracy of our exams speaks for itself. And that, I'm sorry, is just not true. The funnel of people to get to take the master sommelier exam is so restricted. You have to have mentors within the organization. You have to have worked in certain restaurants for a certain amount of time. There's a whole funneling process that winnows out eligible candidates, eligible candidates of color, eligible candidates who are women across the board. So being colorblind is not the same as being diverse. And I think that is the core misunderstanding of their approach. They're saying, we don't see it. That is not diversity. Well, and I think the other big part of this, and, and it kind of comes back to, again, the sort of whether it's Ivy League schools, country club, whatever uh, analogy you want to make is, it's not even just that you have to have necessarily had the right kinds of connections to have been mentored by existing master sommeliers. It's not just that you have to have worked in the right restaurants. It's also that you have to have the means to buy very expensive wines, to spend a lot of your time focusing on studying and blind tasting. You have to be able to just literally afford to be able to get to the exams, to be able to pay for you know, extremely expensive, um, you know, preparatory courses that are mandatory, at least in some levels. There's all this stuff that goes along with it that was this huge price tag. And as mentioned, you have to be prepared to fail the test multiple times and spend that money again. And the, the honest truth is, how many people, period, can afford to do that? Right. And certainly people from marginalized groups whatever in the wine world or, or society at large, it's going to be an even smaller percentage. So it's just, you know, the the all of these things are not mandatory. They're not the way this has to be. The court has the clout to get sponsorships from 
you know, from brands to get sponsorships from institutions that would gladly foot the bill for some of this to have some shine from from a highly, at least what has been a highly regarded institution. But again, it comes back to wanting to ensure that a small number of people every year, and you know, again, what from what to me look like quote unquote the right people, and you can read into that exactly what I intend you to read into that are the people who pass the exams. And it's no surprise that when you look at the pictures, you know, not a lot of diversity there. They're doing a little better on gender these days, I think. Um, that's been a that's been an effort that's been going on for years. It's still nowhere near the level of parity it should be, but it's not. I think the the really really like. Uh, grossly uh, male dominant. It's just real male dominant now. But but more than anything, it's just it, it, there's this whole segment of possible amazing wine professionals that for for a variety of reasons are just you know they're never going to go down that route. And maybe they don't need to. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe it's fine that they don't in some sense. But you know if you want to have this high minded ideal of of epitomizing what is you know the the the, uh, the highest level of wine knowledge, wine and wine service, then you should, I think, as an organization, be really, really uh, uh, keen to bring in people from as many different back to- backgrounds and experiences as possible, because it will only make your organization stronger. And it just it baffles me that that does not seem to be any kind of priority. So, what do you think? Do we think out of all of this? Because I agree with everything you know you're saying. Do we think out of this? This is going to be sort of like first of all sort of the the initial undoings of the court first of all which i I have to think it 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 could be um i think it will be um you know there's there's too much we're focused way too much right now on fixing what we need to fix and i don't see the court as wanting to fix those issues in any really meaningful way and is this going to be the w sets time to shine um you know, like I, I've heard a lot of people in Europe say they've never really understood why WSET hasn't taken off more in the U.S. And they, and usually when I've talked to WSET professionals, especially um, one who runs WSET in England, she had said to me, you know, their always assumption was, well, that's because the court is so, you know, such a big behemoth in the U.S., right? That everyone knows it. It's famous because of, you know, the SOM documents, et cetera. So people, you know, start – the only people that really take the WSET in, in the U.S. are writers – um, you know, some professionals in, uh, you know, on prem, oh, sorry, off premise. Um, also some people in the trade who are in sales or marketing, et cetera, but it's not, especially people who are on the floor, but that you do see more people who are on the floor, take the W set in, in Europe. So I wonder, because I mean, I, I'll be honest, I did not look a- ahead of time to see how many masters of wine there are in the world. Um, it may be just as exclusionary and then, and therefore it's going to have the same issues, but I have to think a little bit that it's more democratic. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak from personal experience, so so I will I will say that I that, that anything I'd say about it is is a little bit based on just what I've read. But I do think one fundamental difference is as you get to the through all levels of of W set the the standards and even things like the wines that you taste blind, which are never released publicly in the Court of Master Sommeliers, are made public. So at a minimum, you have enough transparency where someone can say, well, wait a second, you know, my passing and my failing isn't a Feel, doesn't feel arbitrary, like I think it often does with the court to some extent. Where uh, in, you know, with with W set at, at whatever level, you know, okay, here are the exact wines that we tasted, and if I don't pass and someone else does, I can probably look at what they their conclusions and mine and understand why. And it doesn't mean that there are no issues. Again, like anything involving wine, access is and, and you know financial ability to to buy these wines is is a huge issue. But at least the tests themselves 
lend themselves to a little more objectivity, I think. I, I, I apologize. I know I've been talking a lot. I have one last thought, though, that yes, comes back to this idea about, <laughs> about whether this is going to be the end of, of the court. I think the real question that I have that goes along with that is, you know, are we at the end of the sommelier craze, period? And, and of sommeliers. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's been a huge conversation in, in my circles. You know, we don't know what the hell is going to happen with restaurants in this country. You know, we are going through a an unprecedented crisis um, in terms of obviously sparked by COVID, but it's going to be continued by just the economic realities in this country for the foreseeable future. And the fact that in many places, as was mentioned before, you know, they're rolling back the ability uh, of places that are already, that are currently open. I had a friend who I was supposed to do uh, an interview with for uh, or a colleague for an interview with for for our conversation series who you know, 30 minutes before we were supposed to talk had to cancel because the, where she lives, they've, they've shuttered restaurants and she had like an emergency meeting she had to go to about this. So, you know, we are in this period where the restaurant industry, which is where obviously sommeliers work mostly is going through crisis. I don't know what it's going to look like coming out on the other end. And I know that sommeliers, you know, are a luxury item within the restaurant, uh, you know, ecosphere in general, you know, they're, at the high end restaurants, they're the thing that you, the person that you hire when you things are, when times are good. And I think that, you know, there's, there's already a a lot of crises that are facing the profession. And I think this one is one that's going to really cripple it. And I think like, frankly, that's going to do a lot to, to hurt the, the court, because frankly, if you're, if I were someone who's looking at, you know, potentially going forward, I mean, what is the point? Maybe, you know, other than my own satisfaction, like, are the jobs that were waiting for me three, four, five years ago out there? I mean, there are already issues with with a lot of competition for those jobs as is, but but certainly with the state of the industry now, I mean, again, I think we're going to look back at this period of time and be like, "Wow, it was a sommelier bubble." How yeah. funny was that? Yeah, I think you're. I think we're done, um, and I think we're done for a few. Re- Seriously, and, and I think the. I mean. And it's not just because you said it, Zach, um, <laughs> although you're making good points. And, but I think a lot of people are having those conversations. And here's where I think we're done. Do I think that like the top restaurants in, in the U.S. will continue to have Psalms? Yes. Like the, the, the four star places that – look, we have to remember that – I mean it's just – it's funny. It's a, it's a weird anecdote. But like I was reading you know, yesterday in the Times like uh, a group of uh, you know, wealthy millionaires from America who were like, we – fuck this European ban. We don't think there's a ban on us and tried to land their, uh, their private jet on Corsica. <laughs> they were turned oh, yeah, away. I saw like, that. No, like we don't, <laughs> this applies to you too, fuckers. <laughs> but, I <do> think, <laughs> but I do think that like, there's a lot of there, you know, there's still a lot of wealth in, in, in the world and in America. Uh, it's not, it's not, you know, spread evenly like it should be, but there is wealth and there's going to be people that will go to fine restaurants. I don't think there's going to be as many of them. And I think those that are fancy, right? The per se's of the world, et cetera, will still have some Psalms on the floor. Do I think that like the neighborhood restaurants that, you know, until March had Psalms on the floor, will have Psalms on the floor? Hell no. Like, I think that is over. This idea that like the casual spot that you go to that, that had Psalms, is done. I think you're. It's going to go back to like what we saw. You know, when I first moved to New York, uh, and even prior to that, which is like the manager is also going to run the wine list. We'll probably walk over if you want to really talk about wine, but they're mostly you know manager owner will educate the service staff on the wine, and that's going to be it. Because you're right, it's a luxury item. Like who has who who's going to pay for that anymore? Like who's going to just have a full time psalm on the floor? I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, there's so many of these restaurants that have popped, especially in Brooklyn. You know, that are like these twenty, thirty seat, you know, high end, 
taverns or what you know what have you right or high-end trattorias like have a psalm on the floor and i'm just like in what world is that even at all smart moving forward it's totally and you know and i think like over the past several years we've seen this democratization of wine already right we've seen very casual restaurants but with amazing cool wine lists maybe not you know hundreds of selections but really tight well curated wine lists at uh affordable prices and more luxury prices. But I think that democratization of wine uh, combined with the crisis we're seeing now and this racial reckoning, I think it, I think it's entirely likely that it could lead to a dismantling of this country club of, of Psalms. I mean, who needs that level of, uh, you know, expertise, exclusive expertise that is coming out of this oppressive structure. I just don't know that moving forward, that has a place. And I think that's why this is the do or die moment for the CMFs. If it's going to restructure itself, I think like this is the time it's you're going to be outdated unless you make some real significant changes. Yeah, absolutely. Right, it's it's gonna be like if you if you're a restaurant going for two or three Michelin stars, you'll probably have a psalm on the floor. If you're not, which is you know the majority of restaurants in this country, you probably won't anymore. And I think that's gonna be okay. Yeah, it's gonna have to be. <laughs> well, uh, this was a, fa- a fantastic conversation, guys. I, I it was really uh, enjoyable. I we'd love to hear what you out there listening to the podcast think. Um, whether you're you're pro anti agree with all, all of what we said agree with only some of what you said what we said please shoot us a line at podcast at vinepair.com let us know what you think give us your hot take um and you know as always please drop us a review rating on itunes spotify wherever you get your podcast it helps everyone else discover the show and erica zach thanks for another great conversation talk to you again next week talk to you then sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.